Uh, okay, thank you. Uh, this case should not have been dismissed, Your Honors. As plausibly alleged, the specific array of concrete artistic choices that created the rare and remarkable world in my client's film, The Truth About Emmanuel, also permeate the first three episodes of Servant. Servant took not only the idea of a grieving mother hiring a young woman to care for a doll, but also lifted a host of idiosyncratic choices that gave frame-by-frame -frame expression to that idea, choices not dictated by any shared premise. Under this court's precedence, experts can and should testify to the uniqueness and qualitative significance <coughs> of these shared expressive choices, all the more so because we have technical allegations given that we're dealing with two fully realized works. Um, experts can also speak to which, if any, sin affair or, or scenes or sin affair or generic. The bottom line is, though, that because of the uncanny number of expressive similarities shared by these two fully realized works, uh, belies any claim of literary accident, Miss Gregorini is entitled to her day in court. A motion to dismiss, uh, a dismissal is in inappropriate when the complaint plausibly alleges in detail, as this court's precedents instruct, multiple concrete similarities in expressive elements. We have that and more because we don't only have multiple concrete similarities and multiple expressive elements in our 50-page detailed complaint, but we have them in key similar scenes that are sequenced in the same order to move the plot forward in the same way. And examples abound. The more you watch these works, the more you see. But I'd like to talk about three here, if I may. Um, first, there's an intense bathroom scene about 30 minutes into each work involving the two female leads uh, caring for injury and culminating in an almost identical frame, which is at JA 280 uh, in our complaint of the mother kissing the title character's hand. Um, second, there's a scene where the mother preps the title character for a date. It's about halfway into each work. You have similar lighting, similar dialogue, similar blocking, and then extraordinarily, the mother lends the title character a nearly identical white virginal garment with some dark spots on it. Um, finally, there's a sequence of scenes. Now it's the mother's turn uh, to go for uh, a date and the title character is watching the mother's at the, the vanity applying makeup. You have a camera shot of the mother applying her makeup, the nanny or babysitter or title character, I think is the best way to compare them, sitting on the bed watching same shot. Um, the, the title character then takes the mother's seat and, and emulates her uh, and finally later on uh, is standing at the top of the stairs, a similar staircase, similar shot, similar lighting, watching surreptitiously and kind of jealously as the mother greets the uh, romantic interest. The district court recognized that this relationship between the two title characters was central to Emmanuel and also that it was unusual in Servant, but he failed to connect the dots. So these are not random similarities or sen affair that you can dismiss away or overgeneralize, oh, no big deal, a makeup thing. These are things that are moving the plot forward and giving expressive life to something that is core to the original work. May, may, and may I ask this you, court's precedent. 
Ms. Deutsch, may, may I ask, if, if we were to, uh, you know, suppose we agree with you and we, re we reverse, and, and if this case were to go to trial, uh, how would the jury be instructed, um, in your view, on substantial similarity? Because I, I think we can all agree there's, you know, there's a bunch of things that are similar between the, the, the two um, uh, works and, and a bunch of ways in which they're not similar. Uh, so is the jury just told to make some gestalt assessment of the substantiality of the similarities, or, or is there some more concrete guidance that you, you think they would need to be given? Well, I would be delighted if you would reverse and send us straight to trial, but I, I think we have to pass a, a likely summary judgment motion from Apple first. Um, my understanding sure. is that uh, under the court's precedence, the jury uh, is uh, instructed according to the intrinsic test, which, as you said, is kind of a gestalt uh, uh, you know, total concept and feel of the work. But I've also seen cases that went to jury and the experts also testified. So I would think that you would, and it's an open question in the law, and it's, it's kind of hard to answer on a case like this where we don't even have a record yet, but I would think that you would want to have the jury listen to the expert to get a sense of what truly is unique about the two works and not accidental, uh, you know, especially given that you have these thickly realized, uh, thickly protected works, the, the likelihood of certain elements appearing in both. Um, as far as the, um, I think the easiest test for the jury, and we win on both, that, you know, whether you want to talk about the district court filtered out too many uh, protected elements or assumed that elements weren't protected where it's really too early to know. But the jury could easily be select, uh, instructed, I think, on the selection and arrangement test that we also went on. And, and in that test, it, it, it precisely is, as I read the cases, it's meant to prevent the courts from, uh, you know, breaking works into, you know, such detailed components that you lose what the work is about. But it also demands to prevail uh, a unique and original combination. You know, what are the odds that all of these elements are going to come together in a unique way to tell this specific story and expressed in these ways? And here we have plenty of allegations in our complaint about these kind of unique combinations. So, counsel, if I could just jump in with a question. We do have cases in our circuit, and I would acknowledge our law is not entirely clear why, but we do have cases where cases like this are dismissed at a motion to dismiss stage, and the Ninth Circuit has affirmed. Help me understand what the test is to decide when a case is appropriate to be resolved at a motion to dismiss stage versus maybe summary judgment or trial. Well, as I think that you have to have allegations that are so weak that there's no... Uh, no discovery or expert testimony could shed light. But um, so, but if you have the complaint plausibly alleges multiple concrete detailed similarities, which we have here, and we have both breadth and depth. You have big picture, unusual ideas and plot twists, and you have tiny details down to wallpaper and, and you know, garments and, and character interrelationships. Um, that goes through. And I would also note that this case involves a fully realized movie. 
you know, you haven't had one of these since the Star Wars case. Um, and so there's a host of technical allegations involved in this case that aren't there in some of the um, unpublished dismissals that uh, my friend on the other side cites in, in his brief. And of course, the summary judgment dismissals at least had their chance to build a record. Well, let me ask you about a case that I, I think is a, is a bad case for you. I'm not saying it's fatal, but it's bad. Rentmeester. Okay, now I'm, I'm not a fan, not a fan of the decision, <laughs> but it, it, it's there. How do you distinguish Rentmeester? Because that, you know, I thought those two things looked pretty much the same, but uh, two of my colleagues, and that's what matters, disagreed, and that was a motion to dismiss. I understand, Your Honor. Um, well, I think in Rentmeester, when they took away the pose and they took away the background, as protected, there just wasn't that much left. And here, I think you would distinguish that, you know, conceding the basic premise, albeit unusual, is not protectable of a mother uh, hiring a young woman to care for a doll. There's so much else left that doesn't follow naturally from that premise. And there's so many layers of expressive choice that give frame by frame idea to all those things that don't flow naturally. And precisely because a lot of that is contested, you need an expert to say, no, actually, you know, the defendants may poo-poo some of the allegations in the, in the complaint, but an expert can come in and testify, you know, what the significance of magical realism is in, in the book, how reality bending works, how it is that, um, excuse me, um, you know, the lighting and the camera work and all of that come together in a unique way. So, so I just think, you know, we just have a richer, it's not a canvas, it's a 3D 90 minute world where every choice is the result of creative collaboration and no detail is left unexamined. Counsel, could you um, help me understand, putting aside disclosing and, and discovery relating to experts, what would the discovery look like, look like in this case if we were to uh, reverse? Well, we talked a little bit about this in the 26F, that's at JA212, um, but obviously access is not um, at issue uh, as the case is presented to your honors. But we expect, uh, you know, a lot of proof of access and maybe actual copying, given the reputation of one of the named defendants, as alleged in the complaint, and also, as I said, this collaborative process of movie and TV making. You know, instructions to prop masters. You know, get me a hallway that looks like that. Get me a staircase that looks like that. Mm. Find me foreign pop music to play at the dinner sound that sounds like what was played. Uh, in a manual, you know, there are just so many striking overlaps that we expect pretty probative proof of actual copy, copying. Um, and, and in general, like a, an understanding of how these different works were made, what is the inspiration of the different works, how it is that something that was so personal and driven by my client's unique experience, you know, came to be uh, made as they implausibly claim, you know, separately by someone in a completely different uh, demographic. So, okay. Thank you. And if, if you guys, excuse me, your honors have no further questions, sorry to be so informal, I would like to save the rest of my time for uh, a short rebuttal. 
No, that's fine. And we've been called far worse than guys. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, uh, Council, you have uh, you have your time. You may proceed. Your Honors, good afternoon, and may it please the court. Nicholas Jample for the defendants and appellees. The district court in this case performed the exact analysis that's required under Ninth Circuit law. It filtered out unprotectable elements and compared the concrete elements of protectable expression in each work after reviewing the works for itself. And that's really important in this case, where the alleged similarities are a combination of unprotectable ideas, sense of fair, generic elements, random similarities, and and numerous mischaracterizations. And then, and the district court properly concluded based on binding Ninth Circuit authority, including Rettmeister, Your Honor, that the works were not substantially similar as a matter of law. The court separately compared the alleged selection and arrangement of protectable and unprotectable elements and also found no substantial similarity as a matter of law. And Your Honor's talked about plausibility. Um, plausibility is something that comes from Rentmeester. And if the, the claims are not sufficient so that a reasonable juror would determine that they're substantially similar and discovery wouldn't change that conclusion, then they're not plausible. This, this is from Iqbal. A claim is only plausible if, if a court can draw the reasonable inference that the defendant is liable. Um, actually, a, a unpublished case from this circuit, uh, I, I thought explained it perfectly, which is Espelande Productions versus Disney. And the court said, no discovery or expert testimony could show how the works are similar, so the claim is not plausible, and dismissal of the movie copyright claim was appropriate. And I think a really important thing to look at in this case is, of course, we have Rentmeester and we have Christiansen establishing a, a almost century-long undisturbed line of, you know, there's two published cases of dismissals for lack of substantial similarity. Both of them affirm, both of them establish that this is an entirely appropriate thing to do, there are numerous unpublished decisions of the couple dozen in the from the Central District of California to this court, uh, unpublished decisions of literary works in the last couple of decades. It's almost a 100% affirming rate. There are three cases that I'm aware of out of 22 that were reversed, and those are for very particular reasons. Uh, one of them was the Astor White case, which, which Your Honor Judge Owens was on, of course, and that actually agreed that there was no substantial similarity as a matter of law but on a two to one sent back to, to allow the pro se plaintiff to amend his complaint. And I think it's important to recognize not just Rentmeester and Christensen, even though those are the, the cases that are on dismissals, but also any ruling here has to be consistent with, with other Ninth Circuit precedent. And that includes Binet and Funky Films. And there's a lot of discussion of that in the briefs. And those are on summary judgment, but they, they serve as important precedent for a couple of reasons. One is, how to filter out extensive alleged similarities that rely on unprotectable elements. And the second is the extent of similarity that's actually required. And Binet is the one that always jumps out at me. Binet is about, uh, in both works, an American war veteran who's also a nonfiction author, uh, who also has flashbacks to being uh, part of a, of a situation where innocent people were killed. Uh, takes a boat over to Japan to meet with the Japanese emperor to help modernize the Japanese army, both in tactics and weaponry, to fight against a samurai uprising led by a main character of the film. And throughout that process, develops a reverence for Japanese culture and is spiritually transformed by his time there. Uh, those are a lot of similarities. Funky Films also has a lot of similarities. And both of those cases apply a lower standard of substantial similarity because that was in the inverse ratio days. 
And both of those cases acknowledge, even under one of them says under a relaxed standard of substantial similarity, no substantial similarity as a matter of law. And so if we believe there are far, far fewer similarities here, particularly if you read the works now opposing counsel, excellent attorneys all the way around and have a lengthy complaint that try to pull out as many similarities as they can try to find between them and characterize things in a very particular way. But if the court looks at the works themselves, as as it does under Ninth Circuit authority, I think it'll determine that as much fewer protectable similarities than Binet and Funky Films. And in fact, Binet has an interesting line that says that that a a closer examination of the works themselves exposes, quote, many more differences than similarities between the works. And that is a reminder that this is not the the lots of similarities works or the reasonable similarity or or a few similarity. It's substantial similarity. And that word has meaning. It means substantially similar in the protectable expression. Now, of course, there's a second part to this because those are on summary judgment. And the next part is discovery. Does discovery change anything? Uh, there hasn't been any until just now a discussion about fact discovery. Most of the analysis has been on expert discovery. And even the topics that are that are being proposed wouldn't actually change anything about the result. Uh, the one example that was given was about um, t- the technical, said technical allegations and the uniqueness of certain techniques and, and methods of of filmmaking and cinematography, and that's prominent in their briefing. Um, the the unusual cinematic techniques that, that techniques and methods and systems are not protectable. And actually, Rentmeester addressed this, where the plaintiff and Rentmeester made a similar argument that he said, "Oh well, I use a, this particular way of doing it," and the court said, "The works are the works. It's not you don't protect the system, you don't protect the technique, you protect the work. So let's let's look at the work." So again, it's it's back to looking at the works. Um, and and uh, as opposing counsel acknowledged, there is everyone agrees that there are unprotectable ideas here about hiring a nanny or or um, it's a nanny in the briefing, but I think opposing counsel is saying a babysitter um, that hiring whichever one hiring a nanny or a babysitter to care for the doll she believes to be her deceased baby is an unprotectable idea. And the sense of fair um, that flow from that idea it doesn't matter if they're unique or they're not unique. Sens affair flow naturally from, from the premise. And in fact, there's, there's ironically an Apple case um, that says that if you allow people to protect and to own Sens affair, that the first person to come up with an idea would, would own it against the world. And that's not the case. A Sens affair flow naturally. And, and, you know, we, we've argued why um, numerous of the alleged similarities do our sense of fair or these sorts of random similarities um, or, or very different, you know, like the, the opposing counsel talked about the relationship between the mother and the nanny slash babysitter. These are very different relationships. I mean, the, the, the nanny slash babysitter themselves, Leanne and servant and Emmanuel and the truth about Emmanuel, they're, they're, they're quite different. Um, Leanne is a possibly paranormal, very creepy, ominous, I, I rewatched the the episodes uh, over the weekend, and lots of very creepy music and shots, and it's a very ominous, creepy um, girl. And the relationship with the mother is very complicated. It's obsession, and Dorothy, the mom, treats her with kindness sometimes and cruelty with other times. Versus the truth about Emmanuel, which is a nice story. They have this nice relationship. 
They both have a lot of, um, they've suffered an important loss. Each of them, Emmanuel, whose mother died, it's, it's the opening voiceover about how she killed her mother and carries that grief without her, with her throughout her whole life. Um, and that then the mother lost her baby and the two of them together at the end kind of find this peace and catharsis. Um, it's very, very different than Servant. Um, and I also wanted to mention, oh, I wanted to mention that you mentioned about jury. Um, the jury would, would needs to satisfy the extrinsic and the intrinsic test. So that only as a matter of law can you do extrinsic. You cannot do intrinsic as a matter of law. Uh, but a jury would have to do both ex this analysis that we're doing here, the extrinsic test, and then they would also do an intrinsic test, which is more the, su the subjective test that they would they they get to do, and that that uh, you know courts as a matter of law don't get to get into that test, and you know we're not getting into that test either. And and what what is um, what's your understanding of how of what would be the appropriate instruction on the extrinsic test? I think the extrinsic test is exactly what the court is doing here, where you have the you, you go through the filtering process. You say, okay, what are the ideas? What are the sense of fair? What are the generic elements? You know, the, the, the courts are in this circuit, you disregard kind of the long list of random similarities and you say, okay, what, what do we have left in, in the protectable expression? Now let's plot sequence of events. You know, you go through that whole test and you say, look, look at the similarities and, and there may very well be similarities in protectable expression. And you ask yourself, are those substantially similar? So I think it's the same exact analysis. So in, oh. I'm, I'm sorry, Judge. Oh. So in, in, in that description of the legal test, are the unprotective elements, would the jury be trying to determine what are unprotective elements or are they filtered out? In other words, uh, well, where, do, where does, and what I'm getting to here is, where does the selection and arrangement theory come into play if this case got tried? Thank you, Your Honor. Um, the selection arrangement theory is actually one thing I wanted to touch upon um, also, so this is, this is a great opportunity. Um, the selection arrangement theory is essentially that uh, although there's all these elements that are unprotectable, we want to put them back in because we're not saying we, we own them. We're saying that exact selection and arrangement is, is copyrighted. And that's, that's important that the copyrighted work is the specific selection and arrangement of those unprotectable elements. And uh, in, their, in the first amended complaint, which is at 3 ER 294, and this is paragraph 63, um, there's one line in the first amended complaint about selection and arrangement. And I know on appeals, particularly in the reply brief, they've, they've pivoted to that argument. There's one line in the First Amendment complaint that does not, it just has a list of similarities just from the regular extrinsic test and then a list of similarities and just says, well, okay, there's selection arrangement. But that's not what selection arrangement is. Selection arrangement is the selection and arrangement. It's not the elements, it's the arrangement of those elements. And we believe that there are, there are three cases that really shine a light on this. The first is the, the Satava case, which is the jellyfish and glass sculpture case. And that court said, Ninth Circuit said, uh, selection arrangements only at play if the elements are numerous enough and their selection and arrangement original enough that their combination constitutes an original work of authorship. And in, in Rentmeester, um, which we've talked about, uh, the court um, went one step further and talked about how there were different ideas that were embodied in the, the photos of Michael Jordan, which, which did look similar. Um, and you have, and very unique is relevant to this case too, unique elements. You have Michael Jordan, greatest of all time basketball player in a 
ballet inspired pose which is not not related to basketball at all it's related to ballet in both you have them outside with no basketball court no other players no referee no other trapping of that he's anywhere near a basketball court you just a hoop and a, and a guy with the ball and uh, he's silhouetted against the the, the sky now, a number of these ideas and Rentmeester said and this is at 1123 and this is a quote Rentmeester cannot claim an exclusive right to ideas or concepts at that level of generality even in combination and that's been that's been confirmed in other um, cases as well and so ideas are ideas ideas are unprotectable so the plaintiff even in the briefing is saying wrap those ideas back in and so we can do selection and arrangement but those ideas are unprotectable period and that's from Rentmeester and from the copyright act and then the third case is skidmore skidmore went even further and it and it really um i think predicted what's happening here and, and in a lot of other cases it's uh skidmore says and this is a quote a selection and arrangement copyright is infringed only where the works share in substantial amounts the particular, i.e. the same combination of unprotectable elements. A plaintiff thus cannot establish substantial similarity by reconstituting the, cop the copyrighted work as a combination of unprotectable elements and then claiming that those same elements also appear in the defendant's work in a different aesthetic context, end quote. That's exactly what's happening here. You have a list of similarities that they're not about the exact order or the selection or the arrangement of those elements. It's just a list of, of elements. And we think the district court, you know, the, we don't think the district court did address selection and arrangement. In fact, the district court's analysis of selection and arrangement is longer than the plaintiff's allegations of selection and arrangement. It's a paragraph and it talks about how you wrap the, you use the Satava standard, you wrap the elements back into to the assessment. You do the comparison, you determine whether that selection and arrangement was substantially similar as a matter of law. And, and we don't believe that was, and we also don't believe there was, um, again, I think this court should go back and review the works. Um, that's really the key, I think, because there are, again, you know, excellent counsel has characterized these things in ways that make a lot of these things seem more similar than they actually are if the court looks at the works. Counsel, and, uh, before you're done, I, I want to turn to the attorney's fees question just briefly before you run out of time. This sorry. strikes me as being a sufficiently close case and certainly not a frivolous case uh, such that the award of attorney's fees here just didn't seem to make much sense to me. Um, tell me why you think you were, your client was entitled to attorney's fees. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, the, the standard, of course, is abuse of discretion, and, and district courts has, have a really wide latitude to, to impose fees. I think for, he, for this case, it's the procedural history. And there's, there's a unique procedural history also because Judge Walter had a very particular set of rules to meet and confer. And I can stop there. I can I can continue going. Whatever whatever oh, finish, works for finish, your honor. Uh, finish your answer. J just the the thought was on the pre there's a very specific procedural history where um pre this was pre pandemic so we had to meet in person go to plaintiff's counsel's office we had a nice uh, conversation about all the grounds of our motion um, we did also a joint statement that Judge Walter required where we lay out everything that we were going to argue and their responses then they say well, they're not going to amend so we filed the motion. Then they decide to amend. Then we do another meet and confer, another joint report, another motion. 
And, you know, the, the idea that the, t- the top level idea here is admitted by everyone to be an unprotectable idea. And we do think a lot of the elements flow from that. So that, that, that's what I would say on that topic, Your Honor. Anything further from my colleagues? No? Okay, thank you very much, Counsel. Ms. Deutsch, thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Deutsch, uh, the floor is yours. You're, you're but but your microphone is not on. You would think we would figure that out by now. Um, you, you won't be the last. <laughs> so on, um, there are a lot of fact-intensive cases going all sorts of ways. This is you know, murky law, but I'd like to focus on some through lines that I think distinguish all of Apple's cases, both um, the summary judgment ones, which are distinguishable just by being at that phase, and the, um, the uh, unpublished dismissals first you're not supposed to zoom out and oversimplify to an absurd level of generality when looking at similarities. You're supposed to look at them in concrete detail. And Apple's briefing and the district court's opinion doesn't do that. Second, such comparison demands a full record where even summary judgment is defavored, but especially with technical allegations, the camouflage of other media. Here you have a film being transplanted into uh, ongoing series, obviously we are alleging the first 90 minutes, 90, to mi- 90 minute pilot to 90 minute film is the direct comparator for infringement purposes, but because uh, there's a, the episodic years and years of TV they hope going forward, of course there's going to be differences. And that brings me to my next point. Those differences don't count in the infringement analysis. Judge Hand recognized that long ago second or third or whatever number I'm at, substantial similarity is more than de minimis. It is not a high bar. You have cases like Swirsky, where the chorus in the song alone was enough to survive not motion to dismiss, but summary judgment, even when the lyrics and the melody of the verses differed. Or Cavalier, one of their favorite cases. Yes, the books were filled with uh, unprotected materials, but the nightlight survived summary judgment. Why? Because it was specific, detailed, protective, expressive choices, and we have those in abundance. Um, it has to be more than a general plot line, and we have that, but there's no, that's Shaw, but no bright line quantum required. Qualitative significance of these choices matters too, and experts help with that. That's Alfred and Newton. Um, Finally, it's not about the overall feel for your honors with respect or look at these works, you can tell. Not at this stage. That, as my uh, friend on the other side agrees, is for jury. Now, uh, quick note on attorney's fees. There's no discretion to defer to here because the district court uh, rubber stamped uh, the statement uh, provided by opposing counsel. And um, the sort of bad faith or vexatious conduct that would rise to the level of displacing the objective reasonableness factor is just not there under this court's precedent. Um, which, just in closing, you're not supposed to at this stage before any record is built, dismiss the case by oversimplifying the elements, expressive elements, or insisting ipsy dixit that similarities flow naturally from a shared premise. The devil is in the details. The servant lifted not only the big idea, but an overwhelming number of concrete frame-by-frame expressive choices 
far too many to be coincidental, whether in the filtering test or in the selection and arrangement. And I would submit that before we start debating how to word the jury's instruction, let's build a record. This is a great case. You haven't had a fully realized cinematic work since Star Wars. Build a record. You have good lawyers on both sides. And let's figure out what the jury uh, gets instructed on a record where you have such significant plausible allegations of infringement. Thank you. All right. Thank you, counsel. Well, I agree with you. Definitely good counsel on both sides. Uh, and with that, this matter is submitted. Thank you both for your briefing and argument today.